We've been asking the Holy Spirit, we've been asking Jesus to come, and now I invite you to turn your attention to the words that the Holy Spirit inspired to be written down about Jesus, so that Jesus may meet us, God may meet us through his word. So we're going to open up to um, the book of Titus, a little book in the New Testament, chapter 3. If you're using the um, Bibles in the seats, you should find that on page 845 in most of those Bibles. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. At one point in my life, I had a very notorious job. I was a substitute teacher. (laughs) For a while, I had a long-term position filling in for a high school math teacher who was out for several months recovering from a serious health problem. And what I quickly found out as I took over for him was that he had been a very lenient teacher with his classes. And uh, most of them were general or remedial level math classes. And I also found out that the administration of, of the school was extremely lax as well. And so the classes I walked into were pretty close to chaos. They, when I told them to sit down and be quiet, they ignored me. When I tried to teach, they interrupted and disrupted the class. When I gave them homework, they rolled their eyes at me and said, yeah, right. When I told them what to do, they said, you can't make me. I had kids walk out of the room without asking or telling me where they were going. I had students tell me I was stupid and worse. I had a kid threaten me that their father was going to kill me. So let me ask you. If you were in that situation in charge of teaching those kids math, how would you feel and how would you respond? What emotions would well up inside of you? Let me ask you a different question. If God was sent to be the substitute teacher to that class and they treated God that way, how would God respond? Let me put, it, put uh, that question differently. When people in the world today act that way, in the world and to one another, and when they treat God that way, how does God respond? That's what today's passage is about. Let's take a look, starting in verse 3. Paul starts in today's passage by describing the world and how we act, how we treat one another. But actually, Paul personalizes it. He doesn't just describe the world out there. No, he uses the word we. He includes himself, and he includes the Christians that he's writing to, and he describes how we used to act and how we treated God. He says we were often foolish, not knowing what God is like, not knowing what would make us happy, or uh, what uh, would be good for us, making poor choices, making bad decisions. He says we were disobedient. No one was going to tell us what to do, especially not God. Let me ask you, how easy do you find it to say, yes, God, I'll do what you say no matter what? He says we were uh, deceived. We didn't realize uh, what was really going on what was going on in us, what life was really about, what our purpose was. We didn't live our lives with daily clarity about who God was and what God was up to in the world. 
Paul also says we were enslaved by passions and pleasures. There were things we liked too much, and, and so we wouldn't or we couldn't stop doing them. But we rationalized it. We said it was okay. It wasn't hurting anyone, and besides, lots of people do it. He also says that we treated certain people with malice. Now, we wouldn't call it that, but the truth is certain people got under our skin. They annoyed us more than a little bit. And so we talked about them behind their back. Sometimes we said not so nice things to their face, or we at least thought those things. He also says that we envied people. We were jealous of what they had or what they had accomplished or the recognition that they got, which in some cases was the recognition we deserved. And so we didn't get along with everyone. Truth be told, Paul says, some people hated us and we hated them in return. Does any of that ring true? Isn't it a pretty realistic description of, of the dark side of the human experience? Now, we might try to downplay those things to, to not think about this side of life, to, to pretty it up with good manners. But, but there's something in our heart which knows that, that that's how we are and that's how we humans treat one another. And Paul's just telling it straight as he sees it. And so let me ask the question again. If God were to walk in as substitute teacher to a class like that. No, if if God were to look at the world treating one another that way, how do you think God would feel? What emotions would be going on in God? Last week, we talked about God's justice. We talked about how God judges everyone according to what is right and true and just. But there's more to God than his justice, which today's verses tell us about. Looking at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. And verse 5. Because of his mercy. And verse 6. Whom he poured out generously. And verse 7. By his grace. Remember my class in in chaos, nasty, disrespectful, disobedient, mean-hearted? That in many ways describes the world. And how does God respond? Not only with justice, but also with kindness, love, mercy, generosity, grace. Is that how you'd respond? (laughs) And if so, for how long? How many class periods or how many days or how many semesters could you keep up that positive attitude? Could, could you not let them get to you? How long? Well, here's the thing about God. God's heart, God's character is not like ours. God's response to people who drive us crazy, who waste what is precious, who ruin what is good who take advantage and grab more than their share, God's response to people like that is not like ours. God is not like us. God is merciful. There's an old story about the the Greek uh, emperor, the great uh, conqueror, Alexander the Great. I can't remember if I've told it before, but evidently he was traveling down the road one day in royal procession, 
when a beggar beside the road dared to call out to Alexander for a handout. The man was in rags. He was unshaved, unbathed, really in a wretched condition. And to those there that day, he had no right to bother the great emperor for anything. Yet to everyone's surprise, Alexander stopped and threw the beggar several gold coins. Now a courtier of the emperor was astonished at this unnecessary generosity and and commented to Alexander, Sir, copper coins would adequately meet a beggar's need. Why give him gold? And Alexander responded in royal fashion, Copper coins would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. Do you see the difference? If, if we are ever going to understand who God is and what is in God's heart toward us and what God has done for us, we are going to have to stop thinking about who we are and what we deserve and start thinking about who God is and what God is like. Let me say that again. If we are ever going to understand who God is and what is in God's heart toward us and what God has done for us, we are going to have to stop thinking about who we are and what we deserve and start thinking about who God is and what God is like. Because unlike and beyond any human being we have ever known, God is merciful. Middle Eastern Bible scholar Kenneth Bailey has told a couple wonderful stories of condemned people who came to understand mercy and to throw themselves on the sheer mercy of the great ones who held the power of life and death over them. The first is a story that he discovered in the oral tradition of the Middle Eastern peasantry. It tells of a condemned murderer during the days of the famous Sultan Saladin. And this killer was condemned to death, but he kept crying, I want to see the sultan, I want to see the sultan, I want to see the sultan. And finally, he was taken into the presence of the great sultan, where he cried out, Oh, most gracious sultan, my sins are great, but the mercy of the sultan is greater. And he was released. A similar, somewhat more modern story is told of the wife of a condemned spy. This was in the country of Jordan. And back in 1960, she came to Abu Alphonse, who was one of the leaders at the time of of the Arab section of Jerusalem. And she was looking for advice on how to free her husband in Jordan. And Alphonse told her to go and to wait outside the palace for King Hussein's motorcade to form. And then when it formed, to throw herself in front of the king's car. He explicitly instructed the lady, this is before the car just started moving. Uh, he, He instructed the lady, do not plead your innocence. And he warned her, you know he's guilty and so does the king. To offer excuses is to destroy all hope. Throw yourself on the mercy of the king. And the lady carried out the instructions and Bailey concludes that the Jordanian monarch knows full well how a noble king is expected to act in that situation. And the spy, her husband, was released. Funny that that many of us don't know this. We don't know this heart of mercy, which evidently even a Muslim king instinctively knows. We don't know God's heart. 
We don't know the freedom and the generosity and the willingness in the great heart of God, the judge of the world, to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. If we did know this, we'd, we'd stop looking at ourselves. We'd, we'd stop looking at others and what they've done. And, and we'd fix our eyes instead on the character and the heart of God. The story's told of a young boy who went with his mother to a local store. And the shop owner, who he knew was a kindly man, as had he'd done before, passed him a large jar of candy and invited him to help himself to a handful. Uncharacteristically, though, the boy held back. So the shop owner pulled out a handful for the boy and gave it to him. And outside, the mother afterwards asked why he suddenly had been so shy and he wouldn't take a a handful that was offered to him because that wasn't normally his personality. And the boy replied, because his hand is much bigger than my hand. His hand is much bigger than my hand. God's hand is so much bigger than ours. God's heart is so much bigger than ours. Do you know the mercy of God? Do you know the kindness of God? Do you know the generosity of God? Do you know the love of God, the grace of God? It's not based on how much we deserve it. It's based solely on what God is like. Verse 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And God is far more big-hearted, far more merciful than we realize. So what has God done for us? How has God extended mercy and generosity? Well, if we keep reading in verse 5, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously. Washing, rebirth, renewal. These are words describing cleansing and describing newness. New beginnings, fresh starts, getting to start over a new life, a new leaf, turning over a new chapter. This word renewal is the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19, 28, when he talks about the renewal of all things on the day that Jesus returns. Everything made new, everything transformed, everything wrong made right, everything broken mended, everything hurting healed. One day that will be true for the whole world. And even now it's being made true for us and in us on whom God has showered his mercy. And so Paul concludes in verse 7, we are heirs justified by God's grace so as to be heirs having the hope of eternal life. Being justified by God's grace means that 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 we didn't earn it. We we never have to earn it, but someone else has paid the cost for us. And so it's a gift freely given by a generous God to the heirs, to the children getting an inheritance, which is a place in the renewal of all things and the eternal life which comes with it. And so imagine that you're a substitute teacher and the kids are mocking you and they're ignoring you and they're threatening you and they're running riot around you. How would you feel about them? How would you treat them? 
Well, I'll tell you what God would do. I'll tell you what God has done. Not treating them, not treating us at all in terms of what we deserve. But treating us instead in terms of God's great, abundant, generous character. Offering mercy, offering forgiveness through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Offering us new beginnings, new life, and a new future to any who would receive it. Well, it's Mother's Day. And to finish this morning with a great story of motherhood and a great story of experiencing the mercy and the rebirth and the renewal that Paul talks about here, I want to invite up Wanda Morgan. Well, happy Mother's Day to everyone here, and just good morning, and I'm so thankful to be here. For you that don't know me, my name is Wanda Morgan, and I'm married to Doug Morgan, and we've been coming to CBC for about a year and a half, I think, and I just want you to know that all this story happened before I met Doug. He's not implicated or guilty in any of this. <laughs> okay. uh, I really am excited about this particular Mother's Day because there's two really important things to me. One is it's my first Mother's Day to be a great-grandmother. My little Athena was born in November of 2017. And it is the 50th anniversary of me beginning my journey as a mother. My daughter, who will be 50 in February. So that means I got pregnant sometime in May in 1968. And that's the story I'm going to tell you. But now I am a mother of three, grandmother of five, and great-grandmother of one. And for you don't know me as well, um, career-wise, besides being married to Doug, which is my best career, and being a mother, um, I'm a retired psychologist. I spent 30 years in private practice. I did some teaching as an adjunct faculty member in psychology departments and um, developmental psych and experimental psych. So... God has brought me a long way from where this story started. Um, I very much was one of those young people who was foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions. Um, I grew up in a church in Texas that was extremely conservative. There was all kinds of legalistic rules. We knew the Bible really well. I mean, I could tell you all the books of the Bible. You could, we used to have contests where they'd say Matthew 4.18, and we'd open our Bibles and try to find it the fastest and get lots of credit for being the best. Went to church three times a week, um, and if you were older, you got to go to Lady's Bible class on Sunday morning as, or Tuesday morning as well. But I knew nothing about a personal relationship with Jesus. I didn't even know anything about the Holy Spirit. We kind of thought he wrote the Bible and retired. You know, and that was about it. Uh, the goal was to do the right thing, to stay out of trouble with God, because you just kind of never knew when you had done something that he might be mad about. And if you didn't figure it out and repent quick enough, you were in trouble. So as you might guess, that did not fill any of the empty and lonely places in my heart as a teenager. In addition to that, uh, my parents were born in the early in the Depression, uh, they grew up in that time as young people. My father was therefore terrified of losing his job or not being esteemed at his job. So he would promise me to do this or do that with me, and then something would come up, and that fear would rise in him, and I would get dumped. And I understand that now as an adult, that he thought that was the best way to take care of me, to not lose his job. But it left a place in my heart of saying, I'm just not very important. I don't really matter. 
um, my mom also worked full-time. Now, in the 50s, how many moms worked full-time? In addition to that, she worked for my father, who put this pressure on her that we have to do all these things just right. So in the midst of all that, um, I learned I'm pretty much on my own, and church is not much fun, and God's probably not really on my team. Um, so in that context, I, I also got a divorce when I was like 13. So in that context, uh, I just said, this is a church thing. doesn't make any sense to me. I don't have anything to do with it. And in the context of the divorce, my mom also quit going to church. And I became any mother's nightmare. Uh, I snuck around as much as I could. Drinking was a thing to do then. Drugs were not around. And so I would sneak out at night drinking. I remember climbing out the window, my, my window to meet people out at 2 o'clock in the morning. I uh, swore a lot, started smoking when I was in eighth grade. Of course, she didn't know that because she had a roommate living with us that smoked, so I could, she couldn't smell it because I could sneak it. And she, the room, house smelled like smoke, and she never caught me. And I don't think she ever caught me until I confessed. <laughs> okay. So in this context, I, when I was 16, I was a um, junior in high school. I was in love with this young man who liked me wanted me, and during the kind of excitement of his, my junior prom and his senior prom and his graduation, I got pregnant. Well, we had been planning on getting married anyway. The story was his parents were going to move to California. He was going to go help them move over the summer. He was going to come back. We were going to date for my junior year, and then we'd get married. Well, with my poorly developed prefrontal cortex, I just said, gosh, Mom will let me get married now, and everything will be fine. So my mother was extremely supportive of me. Um, she helped me negotiate all of that. We didn't even tell my father, like, uh, what's she going to do? We just will tell him later. But I, So I got on an airplane alone, flew to California, got married with none of my family there. And at the end of the summer... His parents decided this move wasn't working. The job he had, my, my father-in-law had gotten wasn't working. We all moved back to Texas. Well, short story is, um, that didn't work very well. But in, I turned 17 in 1968, in December. My daughter, Shannon Cherie Morgan, was, or Will Young at that time, was born February 22nd, 1969. I graduated in high school in May of 1969. She was in the audience. I was not allowed to go to the regular public high school I had gone to before because I was married and pregnant. You couldn't be the one to go to school. So I went to the evening high school two nights a week, and then I started college at Texas Tech that fall because my father had done one thing. He said, you will always go to college. But as you might expect, this marriage didn't work very well. Uh, my husband left me when... Uh, my daughter was about 18 months old. He had been unfaithful to me before she was born as well as after she was born. And he was 17 when I got married. You know, So he was not a bad man. He just wasn't grown up either. And I was, so I was left at 18 as a single mom trying to go to college uh, with this history. And at 19, I was officially divorced. So once I got pregnant, though, oh, this is me. <laughs> at 17. 
Thank you for remembering, Luke. <laughs> it's my notes right here, but you are better than I am. Um, so at that point in time, when I got pregnant, something just, just changed in my heart and said, I don't know about this God thing, but this is not working. So I'm going to go back and give that a chance. So I had been going to church the whole time during my marriage. So that I just felt God step into that whole thing and say, we're going to make this. We're going to make it. And with the hard-working help of my mother, my hard-working mother's help, she let me live in a home that she owned for just exact, for the mortgage with a roommate. She let me live with her. She supported me in so many ways. My amazing in-laws, even though my husband left, they were faithful to me. I remember working 30 hours a week and taking 18 hours in college and them being the people who were my childcare at night. And so I, they had to get up early in the morning for work. So I would take the key to their house, unlock the door, go into the other bedroom to get my daughter and take her out and take her home at night. They all to start again the next day to go to school in the morning. And how am I going to pay for this college education? Well, it's amazing how God uses your mistakes to even fix things. I was also declared during that rebellious time a juvenile delinquent by the state of the court, by the court, state of Texas. They said, uh, you've done too many of these bad things. I was in jail a couple of times for drinking. One time my mom came to get me and I wouldn't go home with her because I was mad at her. Um, so when I needed to get a marriage license to get married at 16, they said, uh, your mom can't, you know, you can't do that at 16. Your mom can't sign your marriage license. Your juvenile probation officer has to do that. So he got to decide whether I got married or not. So he said, yes, I will let you get married, but I don't think you'll ever graduate from high school if you do. Now, he was a good guy. I really believe looking back on it, it was one of those laying down the challenge. If I say this, she will prove me wrong. And so I think I, he was right. I was like, he's not telling me I'm not going to do that. So when my daughter was about two, I thought, I'm going to go back and tell him that I graduated from high school. So there. But he was also a really good guy, and I liked him. So I bring my daughter in. I introduce her. He says, how are you paying for college? And I said, oh, student loans, because my dad won't help me, because now I'm married, I'm a grown-up. And uh, he goes, I think I can help you with that. And I said, how would that be? And he goes, well, the state of Texas has this program to rehabilitate juvenile delinquents. And if you pass this test, then we'll give you some money. Yes. So they paid for two and a half years. The state of Texas paid for two and a half years of my college and also some medical expenses during that time. So as a single mom, God got me through college. The entire time I was attending the same church but being faithful to him the best I knew how. And I graduated from Texas Tech <coughs> University in 1973. I entered graduate school at the University of Missouri uh, in the fall of 73 uh, with an assistantship that God got for me. I met Doug in the fall of this fall of 1974 and we got married in 75 at the ripe old age of 23. <laughs> Both of us were 23. And now we've been married for 43 years. And this is what God has brought out of this. This is the picture of our family this last Christmas when we were in Oregon together. Um, you can see Doug and I, the man on the right of, my, of Doug is our son Jason. Uh, his sister is above us, and then the woman right on her, 
that far side is our daughter Allison and her husband. And then the woman standing by the man in the red coat is my daughter Sherry. And all the rest of them are spouses and children. And little Athena is here on the, in the corner. So we, that is our beautiful family that God has brought out of that chaos and mess. That chaos and mess. Um, the message for everyone in this room is you may be doing one of two things. You may be in the middle of your crisis, or you may be in the middle of someone you love may be in the middle of the crisis, that God has said there is hope. If God can do this with me, God can do anything in the situation that you're in. Or you may be in the middle of something really difficult that's going on right now. You're right in the middle of it, and it feels like, how will I get through it, and what, what good could this possibly be? I would have never dreamed that God would have used my story in so many powerful ways. I'll just give you one example. I was invited to Texas a few years ago to be part of an assessment team for church planners. Church planners need a different set of skills than a regular pastor does. It's a whole different ballgame. So I'm sitting in a group of about 25 people. There are six couples there that we're going to assess, and we're getting to know each other on the first night. And the couple on my right side, who were probably in their early 40s, began to describe their ministry, Mm -hmm. and then they shared with us that their 19-year-old daughter had just become pregnant. So I kind of hear the Lord say, you need to share your story with them. And I said, sure, I'll have lunch with them sometime. He goes, no, now. Okay, I said, but they're doing something else now, and I'll be interrupting. You can ask. <laughs> He's so practical. <laughs> so I said, I think I have something that might be helpful for this couple, and I told them my story. And to see the relief and sort of almost joy on their face that their daughter's story was not over. So one thing I encourage you, if you have a story or you're building a story right now, one of the things Satan does is try to tell us, you were so bad, and to stir up our shame. So we want to keep these stories secret. We don't want anybody to know. As, as the Lord healed me of my shame, I have literally told this story probably 50 times in the last two and a half years to people. I'll meet somebody at a retreat. I, I met someone recently who has, has had struggles with her daughter. And I was able to, we were on the phone, and I said, you know, I think that you're in just about the same place that my mom was 60, 50 years ago. And I could just see over the phone her face light up. So please allow the Lord to use your story. And I want to say one more thing about this merciful, gracious God, just some scriptures. And thinking about it in terms of parent. He loved us before we were born. Jeremiah 1, 3. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He loved us when we were dirty and screaming, I hate you, Daddy. Our mommy. Romans 10. For when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. He has a wonderful and good vision for our life. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. He will provide for us and equip us to do what he calls us to do. Philippians 4, 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And he will stick with us to the end no matter what.
Jeremiah 31, 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with my loving kindness. So I, I want you to take this story, and you can tell anybody else it too. This, this woman told me this crazy story about her life. It's fine with me. What story are you going through that you need to know that you have a merciful God, and no matter what you did, you're going to be fine in his sight, and he's going to take care of you? And what story do you have that if you share it with someone else could be the hope and, the, and help them see the future for themselves or someone else. Would you pray with me? Lord, open our eyes to your love and mercy. The enemy tries to blind us to that. The accuser of the brethren wants to stand before you and before us and say, you're done, you're toast, you've made too many mistakes, it's all over. I come against that lie in the name of Jesus that it is never over as long as we stand in your mercy. And Lord, as Dick said, create the same mercy and love in us for the others around us. Help us to remember your heart. Change us through how you love us so our heart is the same as yours. So it's not work. So it's just who we are. And it just flows out of us to say, huh, I wonder what their story is that they're acting so weird now. Or that they've done this thing that hurt me. Give us that heart toward people. And give us the courage to be open with others about our failures, our mistakes, particularly when it's that person that we've hurt. And Lord, I thank you that you are our absolutely perfect Father, that you never leave us or forsake us, and you have a plan for both our good stuff and our failures that you will use powerfully in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.